Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. Anand Taneja's Genealogy, Time, Islam and Ecological Thought in the Medieval Ruins of Delhi is a landmark publication that interrogates modes of religious practice and imaginaries of time that disrupt dominant claims and narratives of the post-colonial state about religion and religious identity. Centered on the ruins of Feroz Shah Kotla in Delhi, this book brings into view visions of sovereignty, ethics, hospitality, and intercommunal encounters that rescue Islam in modern South Asia from the suffocating pressures, anxieties, and amnesias of nationalist politics and historiographies. Conceptually bold, ethnographically vivacious, and historically grounded, this book masterfully carries a a tragic sensibility while also offering provocative avenues of hope and optimism. Written with poetic eloquence and lyrical command, This book will not only be widely read and debated by scholars of South Asia, Islam and religion, it also cries out for adoption as what will surely become a Bollywood blockbuster. Here now is my conversation with Professor Anand Taneja. Hello Anand, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you Shirali? Very good Anand, thank you so much for your time and for this wonderful book that I'm sure will spark some excellent conversations in multiple fields. Uh, Great talking to you today. Anand, you might know that we have a tradition on the New Books Network that our first question is always biographical. Uh, Could you share with our listeners a bit, uh, Anand, about how you became a scholar of Islam, of South Asia, an anthropologist, and how you got to write uh, this particular book? Okay, thanks very much uh, for that question. Um, I mean, my becoming an anthropologist uh, and a scholar of Islam in South Asia is actually a very uh, locational answer. It's based on my having spent uh, several years in Delhi. Uh, So I moved to Delhi when I was 18 years old um, as a college student, and I was always interested in history. So I became, uh, you know, a student of history. That was my major in uh, college as an undergraduate. And uh, what was interesting about being a history student of history in Delhi is that it's a city that is just... uh, covered with uh, ruins, right? Uh, It's covered with ruins and monuments from uh, the uh, pre-modern period, right? And a lot of these are um, uh, monuments that are uh, mosques and tombs, uh, etc., built by the Muslim rulers of Delhi between the 13th and 18th centuries. So, um, and, you know, fortification and stuff. So I became really interested in... uh, in visiting all of these uh, remains of the past as a, as a as a student of history, um, 
and as I spent time among these, I actually worked as a tour, uh, you know, as someone who gave guided tours, uh, like a docent uh, of these ruins as well. Um, and but as I was spending time in them, I became really um, interested in the kind of life that people lived uh, around these ruins as well. Uh, and then my master, and then I uh, actually went on to do a master's degree in filmmaking uh, at uh, Jamia Millia Islamia, which is a program which really emphasizes documentary filmmaking. So that's the time when I actually kind of uh, started moving closer towards what we can co- what we could call an ethnographic sensibility, because I was talking to people and trying to elicit their uh, stories. And I made a film, uh, a student film, about... Um, Another uh, building in Delhi uh, called um, uh, the Purana Kila, the old fort. So I was trying to look at uh, the 20th century histories of something that was built in the 16th century. Uh, so I became all of, interested in all of these ways in which uh, people lived with these monuments. Uh, now the thing is that m- many of the, the historical monuments of, of Delhi are uh, very Islamic, uh, right? In the sense that they are they are often mosques, they are often dargahs or uh, the shrines of uh, Sufi saints. So if you're interested in the history of Delhi and you're interested in lived life around uh, these buildings, uh, you can't but uh, become interested in Islam. So that's what I mean by saying that my uh, kind of beginning as an anthropologist or scholar of Islam in South Asia is a very situated and local beginning. Terrific. So perhaps, Alan, we can begin by uh, you having our dis- uh, explain to our listeners a bit the key site which uh, anchors your study, which is the Feroz Shah Kotla and its ruins. Could you yeah. tell us about what, uh, you know, Feroz Shah Kotla is, where it's located, its history and its present? And then if I could mm-hmm. ask you also to touch on what I saw as one of the central conceptual arguments and interventions of this book, which is to really disrupt dominant claims and narratives of the post-colonial state about religion and mm-hmm. religious identity that you advance yeah. uh, by looking at the site. So perhaps a uh, two-part question, one more yeah. of a descriptive and second more of a conceptual uh, intervention uh, related. Uh, sure. Uh, so um, Firosha Kotla is a 14th century uh, ruin. It was built in approximately the 1350s. Um, and it's now in a relatively tumble-down state, but it was a massive uh, fortified palace complex, uh, which was the site for... Um, the, uh, the site for the capital of uh, Ferocia Tughlaq, of uh, the Tughlaq dynasty. Um, it's been in a ruined condition for a long time, but at in contemporary Delhi, it's, it's at a very interesting location because it's located just to the south of uh, the old walled city of uh, uh, Shah Jahanabad, which was uh, built by uh, the Mughal emperor Shah Jahan in the mid 17th century and it's kind of at the junction of that uh, city with uh, the newer Delhi built by the British in the early 20th century and then of course uh, kind of the post-colonial development of Delhi after that right so immediately to the south of Firosha Kotla now you not only do you have uh, uh, settlements of Punjabi refugees and also of uh, uh, you know uh, formalized uh, kind of Dalit colonies but you also have the center for uh, the newspaper industry, right? Bahadur Shah Zafar So it's this kind of very interesting junction. It's the ruin uh, at the junction of uh, what's called Old Delhi and New Delhi. Um, 
So what became interesting, so very simply, uh, the site is a 14th century ruined fortified palace complex. Since the 1970s, um, since the late 1970s, it has become increasingly prominent in the city uh, as a darga or saint shrine in which the saints are not, uh, you know, human, but uh, jinn, uh, jinn or genies, uh, spirits uh, in Islamic cosmology. Uh, now, this in itself is very unusual. I mean, uh, in all over the Muslim world, you have traditions of intimacy with the jinn, um, you know, and whether people are terrified of them or whether they have relations with them. Uh, and you have, uh, people have various kinds of uh, relations with the jinn historically. Uh, I don't know any other place where the jinn are given the status of saints. Um, so I became really interested in why this was happening in contemporary Delhi and in what ways it might be connected to uh, the politics of the city, to the history of the city, uh, to the ecology of the city, and to the ways in which uh, uh, different groups interact with each other in the city. Uh, because um, what is interesting about this site, as it is about many other uh, places, many other places identified as dargahs or Muslim saint shrines, in the subcontinent is that it is a space of um, uh, of an extraordinary amount of diversity uh, in terms of the people who come here. So the people who come here include uh, uh, Muslims, of course, but also many, many Hindus, uh, uh, um, uh, more women than men. And if you look at the caste profile of those who, who those we would identify as Hindus who come here, it is uh, uh, the proportion of Dalits or former untouchables is very high. Um, so one of the, uh, there are two um, uh, major things that I do in the book uh, in terms of your question about uh, disrupting the dominant claims and narratives of the post-colonial state and about religion and religious identity. So uh, based, uh, so I make uh, one uh, argument in the book that, uh, you know, that there is, the post-colonial state uh, claims or tends to forget all of the things that happened before the foundation of the state in 1947. And uh, because Jinn, uh, and I say, and I make the claim, and I think uh, that one of the reasons that Jinn become uh, extremely, uh, become, uh, the, become saintly or have this elevated status in uh, post-partition, post-colonial Delhi, is because they are figures, their jinns are much longer lived than humans uh, uh, in Islamic cosmology, because they become, so I make the argument that they become figures of memory, figures who remember things that uh, are supposed to be long forgotten. And that is why they have an, a renewed importance in the post-colonial present. And uh, the other thing I say in the book, uh, because I uh, wanted to think uh, about and I kind of contribute to an ongoing set of uh, uh, ethnographic and, uh, you know, religious studies, uh, anthropological and uh, religious studies literature about um, about why is it, uh, what is it about uh, sites like Dargahs, which are sites of mixed congregation. Uh, and I make a point kind of moving away from, uh, you know, ideas like syncretism or ideas that what we see here is a kind of particularly indic to make the claim that uh, what we see at sites like this is that um, that the reason that people come here is not uh, and both Hindus and Muslims 
is that um, is not because of Islam as restricted as a religious identity, but that uh, Islam serves as an ethical inheritance that uh, everyone who comes here can claim and uh, uh, use to towards uh, you know towards changing their lives in certain ways, uh, or to use the language I use in the book uh, uh, to for a certain kind of ethical self-fashioning. So. Terrific. So the title of the book is uh, Genealogy. So Anand, could you perhaps explain to our listeners a bit what this means, uh, this concept, this idea of uh, genealogy, perhaps with an example. And one of the central um, thematics of this concept, and something you've already touched on in the, your last answer, mm-hmm. is that the idea of genealogy relies on a certain notion of temporality, a certain notion of yeah. uh, temporality that, again, counters the post-colonial states, what you call historical amnesia. So I was wondering if you could also fold this concept into your response, this idea of historical amnesia, as you call it, and how yeah. that relates to this idea of genealogy and what that is as it operates in your book. Okay, so uh, let me uh, start by, again, uh, talk, uh, talking, uh, giving a very uh, situated uh, location uh, answer, uh, located in a place and uh, in materials. So I, uh, the hardest part of my work, the research for this book, was actually getting access to archival records, um, especially the records of the archaeological survey, which I wanted to access because these, the Firosha Kotla is a protected monument right now. It is under the control of the Archaeological Survey of India or the ASI, uh, which is currently under the Ministry of Tourism uh, and Culture. Um, so... Uh, so there were two things that were interesting to me. One, it was very hard to get into the archives. Now, this is an experience that many researchers have in South Asia and something we take for granted. And I hadn't really thought about why it was difficult till I started seeing what happened when you got into the archives. What was the nature of the of the documents you could see when you were in the archives? And what was really interesting for me to see uh, in looking at uh, the actual content of files in the archive uh, was the ways in which they had forgotten or wished to forget everything that happened before 1947. So to give you a very, uh, to give an example that I talk about in the book, uh, there is a tomb called Sultan Ghadi in South Delhi. It is uh, uh, the tomb of the son of Sultan Iltutmish, uh, the second Sultan of the uh, Mamluk or slave dynasty in Delhi. Uh, it is one of the oldest, it is perhaps the oldest tomb within the current, uh, Muslim tomb within the current boundaries of India. Um, we have an account of this being a venerated uh, saint shrine uh, going back to at least the 18th century. Uh, in 1947, the Journal of the Archaeological Survey of India um, published an article which says that there is, you know, that there is uh, uh, every... Uh, every year in the month of Zikad, uh, you have pilgrims coming here. Fine. So that's the record from 1947. In 1955, uh, there's already been violence. So the place has been abandoned because of partition violence. And uh, the Jamiat Ulema Hind, uh, an organization of religious scholars in Delhi, writes to the archaeological survey and says, listen, these, uh, the grave here at Sultan Ghari has been damaged by because of the riots. We would urge you to repair it and we want to kind of revive the urs. Um, and so please give us permission. So the archaeological survey repairs the grave, but then they write back saying, uh, we, we, as far as we know, there has been no worship here for a very long time. 
So we can't give you permission to revive religious practice. Now that is, if you, again, so I'm looking at this in a very long time, but you have a published record in the Journal of the Archaeological Survey of India saying that there was worship here in 1947. I mean, so what sense of time is it in which eight years becomes a very long time? Um, so, yeah, so that I became interested in the ways in which uh, that's just one example, but you kind of encounter this again and again. Uh, the deliberate absence of, uh, like, it's very hard to access post-colonial archives. And when you get access into the post-colonial archives, you discover uh, that there's a silence about, and I think it's particularly telling when the silence is about historical buildings, right? These are supposed to be places of memory. And uh, again and again, you have this thing that, you know, things have not been used here for a very long time. There is a kind of structure, structured silence. Uh, in which documents are hard to get it get at, and once you get into the documents, there is this kind of creation of a silence around everything that happens before the foundation of the state. And I think that is what I call archival amnesia, right? That there is a way in which the state wishes to forget what is inside the archive rather than what is left out of it. Um, and uh, I became interested in that and the kind of vision of temporality that comes with it, that everything that happens before 1947 is a very long time ago. So we're going to forget all kinds of histories and claims on the state that existed before 1947. And part of the reason, of course, is because of uh, the enormous violence that happened uh, with the partition of the subcontinent and uh, the ways in which, you know, that kind of haunted the state, right? And the possibility of that violence coming back. Um, and to contrast this archival amnesia that I was discovering while I was nosing around in the archives, there was uh, the stories that were being told about jinn uh, at Ferocia Kotla and in other places of Delhi, right, in the published literature, where the jinn become these figures of extremely long memory, of remembering things hundreds and thousands of years ago, right? So uh, their, uh, their stories are explored uh, in the book. So stories told at Ferocia Kotla, for example, where um, the jinn um, uh, allow uh, Shah Waliullah of Delhi, the, the famous 18th century theologian, uh, they become uh, a jinn who was alive at the time of the Prophet Muhammad becomes a link who directly connects uh, the Prophet to Shah Waliullah. And another story in which uh, the jinn, uh, uh, one particular jinn, uh, becomes the mode of, uh, of connection through, he becomes the chain, uh, he becomes the link in the chain who connects Moses to Jesus to the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, now these stories tell you about the this 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 the ways in which the jinn uh, serve as modes of connection, connecting uh, human beings centuries apart in time, and serving as witnesses to times that are long gone, right? To which you have no other memory. Uh, this is what I call genealogy, and I found it that it was very interesting that these are the stories about jinn that have been told in Delhi. This idea of this long-lived, more than human memory at a time when the post-colonial state is actually invested in uh, archival amnesia and forgetting uh, the ways in which uh, there was a Muslim presence and a Muslim landscape in Delhi till 1947, right? So what is very proximate is being erased. Uh, and that's at the same time in which you have uh, the emergence of the jinn as figures of memory. Terrific. So let's continue with this thread, uh, Anand, this idea of... Uh 
interrupting linear conceptions of temporality. Perhaps could you share uh, with our listeners a bit about the ritual practices that uh, populate uh, Feroz Shah Kotla? I mean, when people go there, what do they do? What kinds of ritual practices does one find there? And here I'm, of course, referring to a chapter in which you talk about rituals, but also saintly visions and uh, Hindi cinema very fruitfully. But I was wondering if you could perhaps, with the example of some of these ritual practices, uh, share with us a bit more about how they also interrupt these linear conceptions of temporality, which are then amenable to these modern nationalist fixed notions of identity also. Uh, thank you. So one of the most, uh, one of the things that caught my eye early on at Firosha Kotla and uh, which uh, I kind of keep returning to in different ways in the book, so people often uh, write letters of petition. Um, and But letters are then, uh, you, as I discovered as I was looking around in these rooms, you don't see uh, singular petitions, you often see these petitions photocopied, uh, you know, as if being, and people talk about it as, you know, when the people talk about what they imagine Feroz Shah Kotla to be like, they often have a very bureaucratic imagination of it, right? Like that, that the jinns have a, who are saints who have a government with various departments. And people put in, uh, people put in photocopied letters, right? So they're writing their petitions and they photocopy these petitions and put them in. And these uh, petitions often have um, passport photos attached to them. They almost invariably have people's addresses. Um, and as part of my work here, I've read uh, those petitions very closely. I would take photographs of them, right, while, while they were in situ. I didn't, like, disturb them. But I would take these photos and I would read, uh, you know, a small sample of these letters. And then what I saw in these letters was, yes, they seem to be in this form of, um, you know, modern bureaucratic letters. But if you read the content of the letters and the actual form of the letters, uh, these letters are referring, are referring to an older kind of imagination of dealing with the state. Um, these letters are, in effect, shikwas, right, or petitions that are meant to be read by the sovereign. Now, that is something that uh, we know existed uh, in the political theory of uh, the pre-modern sultanate and uh, uh, and uh, even into uh, Mughal India, because this is normative political theory that, for example, Nizam al uh, Tusi writes about in his right? That for uh, twice in a week, the king should be uh, available to all his subjects to be able to address uh, their complaints to him directly. And if they can't address directly, there should be these letters that they can write and which he is obliged to read. Um, now, that is very, uh, now, that is not what people's experience of government is, right, uh, in the contemporary period. There's much, many more mediating layers of bureaucracy that you have to go through. But it was amazing to me to see that, okay, here's this idea of do, writing this very intimate petition about all the things that are going wrong with you, and you're depositing them in the ruins of a 14th century palace. Uh, and in Delhi and in a Tughlaq palace, and we actually have historical evidence uh, from reading in Nubar for example, of such letters being deposited in Tughlaq palaces. And that, I think, is really amazing. That, uh, or that was what, uh, you know, in some senses is um, very, very interesting that you have a, a pre-colonial uh, medieval, let's say, form of or imagination of uh, how you interact with the sovereign, right? Why this writing this 
really intimate uh, shikwa about all the things that are wrong with you and which you hope to be uh, redressed and you're depositing it in the ruins of a 14th century royal palace while at the same time uh, using the technologies with which you would approach um, uh, a 21st century uh, post-colonial state, right? Because uh, not only do you have photocopies, not only do you have uh, password photos uh, and um, addresses, sometimes people actually use uh, the forms of identity uh, that you do use to present yourself to the state, right? So people use uh, voter ID cards, for example. So, and copies of those. So that became, it was interesting to me that, that people are living with these multiple temporalities at once. They're living with this uh, idea of the pre-colonial and approaching it and they're turning to the gym and they're living in the world of the contemporary state and it's photocopying. And they're also spending time in uh, in in pre-modern built space. And I mean, <clears throat> if you look at Feroz Shah Kotla and the ways in which people inhabit the space, it's very different from uh, the rest of the play, the city that they live in. Right, the rest of the city does not look like this anymore. Uh, it does not have the same built form. It does not have the same. Uh, uh, it's not materially or aesthetically the same at all. But that is part of the reason people come here, right? So it is the ruination of the place and being able to come to a place that feels old and interacting with the city in a different way. That is um, is very much at the center of people, uh, why I think people come here. And of course, the stories of the jinn and remembering what things were like a long time ago has been kind of central to the narratives of the jinn. Uh, and I think it's very important that all of this is happening in a in a state, uh, in the capital of a state, in a city, in which uh, the pre-colonial past is almost entirely forgotten, or was uh, is entirely forgotten in official narratives. Right. So uh, we don't really tell a story of Delhi before 1947 in the official account. Um, so, so in ways that I feel that what is happening at Firusha Kotla is through. Uh, uh, through ritual and the religious imagination is a counter to the amnesia of the state. So let me now turn to another key theme of uh, the book, which is the interconnection that you draw between uh, ethics and hospitality. And you do Hmm. so through this concept that you explore and develop of uh, Gharib Nawazi. So I was wondering if you could Hmm. explain uh, to our listeners what this concept is. And as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that uh, you know, ethical self-fashioning is one of the key uh, themes of this book. So I was wondering if you could uh, talk about how this concept of uh, hospitality or Gharib Nawazi uh, connect to the conception of the ethical that you developed mm-hmm. that also depends on this kind of hospitality that people show to strangers at uh, Feroz Shah Kotla. Okay, uh, so what's interesting, uh, what I mean, what well, I was increasingly struck by Feroz Shah Kotla as I spent time there, uh, and I kind of lead with a very interesting anecdote about, you know, when I realized this, uh, when I realized that, oh, wait, uh, no one actually uses uh, names at Ferocia Kotla, names in the sense of using proper names or full names. Uh, and that was interesting to me because um, at this point of being several months in Ferocia Kotla, I'd had very deep and intimate conversations with people and people had had very deep and intimate conversations with me. And I knew a lot about them, but names uh, and, you know, all the all the miseries and travails of their lives uh, 
but names were really not discussed often or if people use nicknames or people use regional epithets you know that this person comes from this part of the city or this part of the city um but they don't use names and i started wondering about what that was right why is it that uh, this is the way in which people interact with each other at dargas um and uh you know that why are people so uh, intimate without using names why is there this culture of nameless intimacy within the space and then i started thinking the way which um, you know not just ferosha kotla but uh, perhaps other dargas work as well um, so you know uh, while i was at ferosha kotla a lot of people uh, would mention also going to ajmer ke hum gareeb nawaz ki dargah ja rahe hain we going to the dargah uh, of muinuddin chishti in ajmer whose uh, epithet is gareeb uh, nawaz right one who's hospitable to the poor but also in the sense of being hospitable to strangers and i kept thinking about that term gareeb nawaz i never really thought of it before but i but given that there was no one that there wasn't a culture of taking names at ferosha kotla i wondered what it means to whether there was a connection there right a conceptual connection between the idea of gareeb nawazi and what is this kind of space that a darga is that is different from other religious spaces right why is it that people come here as opposed to going to a mosque or going to a temple or going to a uh, you know a church um and i found that that actually was interesting right why is it that only within the darga is it that names kind of become immaterial names in india are in south asia in general are very um very loaded right like a name tells a lot about you right just a first name for example um our first names convey a lot of information about us about our social identities you know for example which religion you brought you've been brought up in uh very very easily um and so there is a way in which uh, names over determine social identities particularly in south asia and i think it's actually kind of radical to have a space where uh that social over determination disappears and uh, i i was also paying a lot of attention to the ways in which because you know ferosha kotla is a place where people come back you know people who start coming here i became friends with people who had been coming back for years and the reason they kept coming back was because they they said ki hame yahan pe aake matlab hamari zindagi badli hai things have, our lives have become better we've been healed our lives have changed so i was also paying attention to and thinking about the the narratives of what that healing looked like and the narratives of what that change looked like uh in people's lives whether it was the stories they were telling me or whether what the wishes that were being expressed in the letters uh, that were uh, petition that uh, the petitions that people submitted and almost all of those stories are about transforming your given social identity right like your place in the world that is determined by uh, by birth right the family you're born into uh the caste you born into the religion you born into um and uh, what i think was very interesting about ferosha kotla is that it is a space where when you come in there um because your name and identity is disappeared it becomes a place where your social identity is suspended so people become friends with each other deep deep 
friends and know each other's intimate life stories and you know all the travails and troubles before you know what their caste is before you know what their religion is or even if you have some idea about it that is not at the front of you know how you interact with the other person um so that i thought was why uh, this uh this hospitality that was kind of ingrained in the way that people interacted with each other in the site right the the being hospitable to strangers that because of nameless intimacy you are all effectively uh, strangers from each other that allowed people to be estranged from their given social identity and that is what actually allows for the possibility of ethical transformation of becoming something other than you are uh, uh, than you are in a given social order so so the next uh, question i want to ask is about another major theme of this book which is mm. uh, that it shows how spaces like uh, feroz shakotla or dargahs more broadly a uh, service spaces that also interrupt uh, hardline communal or interreligious religious uh, uh, identities and boundaries mm. and so on and where religious identities are much more fluid than what one might uh, expect from a communal uh, standpoint so i was wondering if you could mm. share a bit about some moments of especially uh, hindu muslim encounters that you witnessed at uh, feroz shah kotla in your ethnography that uh, that interrupted these kinds of communal and nationalist uh, boundaries of religious identity yeah uh, thank you uh, so one of the things that was um, again i think because of the um, of the ethic of nameless um, nameless intimacy and of this kind of hospitality to strangers um, what was um, very very clear was that the the, the long standing friendships that i saw at ferosha kotla were really not determined by uh by questions of uh, religious identity by hindu or muslim uh, or even uh, or caste identity right so one of the people who was um i talk about a lot in the book and uh, uh who's one of the most respected people uh in among the people i sat with at ferosha kotla is for example is dalit right and i didn't again because of the ethics of nameless hospitality no one ever talked about it i mean there would be like coded references to it ki falaki kaum etc etc but uh, never explicitly it was he told me himself right several months into um you know my research and uh, and there were others right so the, the 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 kinds of interactions i saw between um the comfort between working class hindus and muslims and again across the boundaries of gender and caste are quite uh, interesting right people had these very very deep uh, connections which you wouldn't expect from uh, what you read about you know the polarization between communities in india and it let's not forget that delhi has been a scene of uh, extreme communal violence not just in 1947 but you know um afterwards in the 1980s being particularly bad um so so that was one aspect that there were really these genuinely deep friendships uh the other aspect of uh, hindu muslim interaction uh, at feroz shah kotla is actually um uh, in gender, there, there are a lot more women come here than men uh and there is a very very um clear play of desire right in the sense of uh um if you read the petitions that are written at feroz shah kotla uh 
it is often men and women petitioning the saint to help them get married to someone who their family or their community would disapprove of including things that you can tell from the names that are written in the petitions uh make it very clear that what is being asked for is in what we would call an interreligious relation right which is completely disruptive of the morality of family and community so i became really interested in why it is that uh, the dargah becomes the uh, space right the muslim space becomes the space where uh, those kinds of uh, wishes can be articulated the desire to uh, to marry someone from another caste community and it is really interesting to see how the saint is imagined and i think uh, uh, women are kind of crucial to this in the sense that uh, the saint is imagined uh, at ferosha kotla uh, or the saints at ferosha kotla are imagined as uh, as uh, the fathers of daughters right so ferosha kotla is a place where uh, men often came uh, and this is uh, to ask for girl children now this again runs contrary to ideas we have about delhi and patriarchy and a patriarchal society where um you know uh, we know that uh, delhi is a city with a skewed sex ratio of about 800 women to 1000 men uh, partly because of uh, i mean partly because there's a massive um, labor in migration which is largely male but also partly because of the selective uh, abortion of female fetuses uh right uh, so there is a way in which already this place is challenging what our ideas of patriarchal society are so why is it that uh, the muslim saint uh, becomes uh, the father of daughters why is it that both men and women come here to to in ways that are connected to women right in ways that are connected to uh you know uh, if you talk to the men they're like yeah we either they started coming here to pray for daughters or they started coming here because their wives were coming here or uh, you know uh, their wives used to come here and then when their wives passed away they started to come there so there are all these ways in which every story uh, about coming to ferosha kotla is somehow connected to uh, women whether it's men or women and when you talk to women about the way uh, they have these relations of intimacy with the saints it's always like this relation of a father to a daughter so here you have uh, and these are relations uh, that are talked about by both uh, hindus and muslims right so so there is a kind of cross um, cross uh, community uh, cross religious community relation of kinship where for hindu and muslim women uh this the figure of the saint is the figure of the father of the girl child uh which is a very interesting figure in uh, in north india right where uh, kinship is patriarchal as it is in uh, many other places but uh, familial arrangements are patrilocal right that women marry into uh, the house of the of the in-laws right so they live uh, with the family of the husband um so the father of the daughter um is the one who is the kind of the anti patriarchal father because he's the one who gives away his daughter he's not the one who's uh kind of uh going to carry forward the whose whose lineage is going to be carried forward so he has no investment in the patriarchal in the uh, in the continuation of the lineage but he also the father of the daughter becomes the uh, figure of uh, innocence 
and intimacy and the childhood left behind. And that is for the congregation that comes here. Uh, why do Muslim saints play that role uh, in the ethical lives of the Hindu and Muslim men and women who come here? Uh, why is it that, um, you know, this is the place, the Muslim saint shrine, where you can express uh, desires that you would be uncomfortable about expressing anywhere else? And I think, so what I do in the book is try, uh, is kind of draw a genealogy, uh, literally in the sense of like looking at how uh, figures like jinns have been used uh, in even in the pre-modern past uh, to to uh, what do I want to say? Yeah, to 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 work out issues of human intimacy, and I think there is uh, we have to look at the affective heritage, right? The way in which uh, the the relationship of the Prophet Muhammad uh, to his daughter, for example, right? The Prophet himself as a figure who uh, is not a patriarchal figure, right? He's not uh, the father of the community, uh, in a sense. Uh, but uh, his, uh, his the primary relationship of, uh, of him as a father is connected to his daughter, Fatima. And what is the affective inheritance of that that carries through and which carries through the memories of uh, Muslim saints, um, or and even if they are jinn saints, into contemporary life, uh, I think really challenges ideas we have about how religions interact with each other. This kind of possibility of alternate kinship that it opens up for both Hindus and Muslims is very, very interesting. So as a final substantive question, Arad, I want us to sort of take a step back and think more broadly about the larger uh, uh, intervention and the political stakes of this project. And I want to do that by by having you talk about this very interesting um uh, I guess, uh, site that you talk about towards the end of your book, uh, and very evocatively, especially in the conclusion or the epilogue, uh, the Satpula. And I'll have you describe what it is, if you could share with our listeners its history and its present. And uh, through that example, if you could tell us a bit about, you know, the larger uh, sort of intervention and uh, politics of this project. And, uh, you know, as we were talking earlier, that in some ways, this is a very tragic text, and it's talking about a tragic uh, uh, sort of a present in which uh, nationalist and, uh, you know, the post-colonial state has sort of taken over in terms of how identities are imagined, but then there are in this mountains of uh, darkness and tragedy, there are also avenues of hope that you also explore. Mm-hmm. So there is a note of optimism also that that uh, uh, layers this, this book. So anyway, so I was wondering if you could speak a bit about these broader stakes uh, by looking at this very specific example of the of the Satpula, uh, as you talk about in your conclusion uh, of the book. Uh, thank you. So the Satpula is a 14th century uh, bridge and dam structure. Uh, it's kind of a dam with sluice gates and arches, and it's kind of a beautiful engine and beautifully engineered uh, structure uh, in southern Delhi, which used to connect the flow of water into the 14th century uh, city of Jahanpana, uh, again a Tughlaq city, uh, and at the time of the mass conurbation. So it's you know, connected um, in terms of its historical uh, era and in terms of its, uh, you know, architecture to Firoz Shakot, right? So contemporary of this building. Now, uh, Satpula, for the longest time, was actually a sacred space in the hist- in in the city. Uh, it um, we have an 18th century description of a fair that happened around it, in which. Uh, in front of the Satpala, uh, you know, on the other side of the sluice gates, which uh, 
there was a well, right? So obviously, uh, where uh, and there was water would collect there. There was a spring, and um, people would come and bathe in the spring because it was considered to have healing powers. So this uh, medieval uh, engineered structure uh, and the kind of the the natural feature that it was interacting with both kind of get sacralized and connected to the memory of the saint Nasruddin Charagadeli again 14th century Chishti <coughs> um, uh, saint who lived very close to the um, who, whose khanka was very close to the Sattala. So anyway, so it's a major, if you read 18th century and uh, Persian texts and 19th century Urdu texts, uh, like for example, uh, Sayyid Ahmad Khan's Asar Sanadin, uh, this is a major uh, sacred site in the city. So what I uh, do in the book is talk about what the site used to be, where if you look at what it was like in the 18th century, look at it in the 19th century, and then I describe my own visit to the site and um, it's kind of a bleak picture right because not the site is now completely abandoned the 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 all the gaiety and the festiveness that was uh, around the site which is described in all these <coughs> accounts is gone uh, the stream that used to flow through the satpala has been diverted it flows about 50 meters to the west now um, and it is no longer um, a site of uh, it's no longer a sacred site uh, it is no longer um, uh, basically the stream has become an open sewer because all the sewage of uh, the developments that have come up further upstream are now going into uh, the stream without being filtered uh, in any way. So it's literally <clears throat> liquid shit and effluents that are uh, in this formerly sacred stream. Um, and of course the groundwater is depleted, so whatever spring used to be there isn't there anymore. <clears throat> so for me, Satpala becomes kind of uh, important because <clears throat> it is a great, uh, here you can see how progressively not only has the post-colonial state disconnected the, the pre-colonial, the buildings of the pre-colonial past from their context uh, and forgotten what they were about, but there's also an enormous ecological devastation that has come to the city, uh, which has completely changed the way that, uh, say, the phenom phenomenological uh, engagement with the sacred that used to... Um, be part of the city, you know, all of the, if you read 18th century accounts of sacred sites in the Delhi, the sacredness is almost always connected experientially to greenery, to flowing water, to the scent of flowers. It's a very ecological kind of experience of the sacred, even if you're talking about the Barkat of Saint's tombs, right? So the uh, the Barkat of uh, Qutbuddin, Bakhtiar, Kaki is connected uh, directly to the, you know, the greenery of the surrounding trees of Meroli. All of these things you just do not see any or experience that anymore and Satpula becomes uh, kind of emblematic of the ways in which uh, there's been both a forgetting and a destruction of of the of the sacred landscapes of Delhi um, and I talk about it uh, Satpula at the end of the book as well because I contrast it to 
what I saw in Isfahan, right, uh, where I visited while I was doing, uh, I went to Iran uh, on a short break while I was doing fieldwork in Delhi on the book. And there I saw a structure that, you know, architecturally was very much like the Satpala. Uh, this is the Pule Khaju in Isfahan. But except, uh, and but rather than being a dark abandoned ruin, uh, the Pule Khaju, which is 15th, 16th century, is actually a, an enormous center <coughs> of social life in Iswan, right? The river Zainde uh, still flows through uh, the arches there, uh, through under the bridge, and uh, you know the sluice gates are open to let the river flow, and the water is clean, and people are dipping their feet into the water, and <coughs> people uh, you know use the arches under the bridge to sing, right? So they're singing hafiz and the acoustics are marvelous and the whole place is just alive and so i in the in the conclusion of the book i talk about how it was going to isfahan which made me realize what the life of the satpala used to be like that before that i i couldn't even imagine what this site was like <clears throat> and so that is the despair in the book right that in some senses uh, to write about uh, the ways in which uh, the past is contested <clears throat> in Delhi, the medieval past and the, uh, the material remains of the past is contested, is to tell a very sad story. It is to tell a, st a story of, of enormous destruction and of enormous amnesia, um, which has kind of left these buildings contextless and left, uh, and, uh, you know, the urban development of Delhi has actually <clears throat> done an enormous amount uh, of damage to, you know, the ecology of the city and the ways in which it was connected to the city's sacred geography. But at the same time, in Ferocia Kotla, uh, you see where actually, bizarrely enough, because it is protected by the ASI, <clears throat> there hasn't been that development, right? So you still have a sense of the openness and the greenery of what earlier, uh, of what an earlier sacred Darga in Delhi might have looked like. Uh, you kind of have that in Feroz Shah Kotla and the ways in which people here um, interact with birds and animals, uh, the ways in which, not just the ways in which Hindus and Muslims interact with each other, men and women interact with each other, but the ways in which the humans in, of the city interact with the non-human uh, animals at Feroz Shah Kotla also tells us that there is this kind of possibilities of hope and of reimagination of and of re-inhabiting the city. Now, uh, Firosha Kotla, I mean, jinns are shapeshifters in Islamic cosmology. So, you know, they can take the forms of animals and, uh, and that is how they can make themselves visible to you. So all interactions with animals at Firosha Kotla, because it is a site of, uh, you know, of saintly jinns, all interactions with um, animals at Firosha Kotla are potentially saintly. And so that makes uh, interactions with all kinds of creatures at Firosha Kotla very different from what one would imagine in a city that is, uh, uh, to paraphrase Nietzsche, all too human. And that is kind of uh, the way in which I can see hope for a, you know, a different kind of imagination of living with uh, the ecology, living with non-human others that I see Firosha Kotla opening up. So, Anand, as we are coming to the end of our time, uh, could you share with our listeners what's the next uh, project? 
Yeah, so um, I've been in Delhi for the past um, eight months. Um, I'm working on a project on uh, trying to understand uh, Muslim ethics in the age of Hindutva. It's a little grandiose, uh, but uh, it's been a really interesting experience. Uh, and there are many, many things to talk about. But one of the aspects that uh, that I'm having the most fun with, uh, which I hope to write about the soonest, is looking at uh, uh, the emergence of Urdu poetry, the, the re-emergence of Urdu poetry in Delhi. Um, it is a really interesting and productive time for Urdu poetry in Delhi right now. And bizarrely enough, it's been happening in the last four years since we've had a particularly uh, Islamophobic um, uh, and majoritarian government in power. Uh, and I'm really interested in the forms of uh, not just in, you know, purely political poetry. Of course, that's there too, and it's uh, really interesting. Uh, some of the most interesting critiques of the current government have actually been articulated in Urdu poetry as opposed to uh, any other form of literature. Uh, but uh, I'm also, beyond that, I'm really interested in uh, what is the kind of imagination of the self and imaginations of relating to the other uh, imaginations of uh, sovereignty uh, that are being articulated, imaginations of romance that are being articulated through this poetry at this particular moment, how it's different from, you know, earlier Urdu poetry, how it connects, um, you know, so I spend a lot of time hanging out with poets. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So, Genealogy, published by Stanford University Press, uh, written by Anand Vivek uh, Taneja. Uh, thank you so much, Anand for this conversation, for this wonderful book and this multi-layered uh, project. Uh, really look forward to the conversations that it will generate in uh, multiple fields. Uh, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. So this was my conversation with Professor Anand Taneja about his wonderful new book, Genealogy. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please also join us next time for another fresh episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Bye-bye now.